We'll begin our sermon today with prayer. We pray, Lord Jesus, you came from heaven to our world, took on our human flesh, took on our human life, lived and died for us. Bless us this whole Advent season as we celebrate not only what you have done coming to our world for the first time, but uh, also help us to become excited to celebrate again and look forward to your second coming to our world. Bless us today in our sermon. Bless us as we study your word. Send your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and encourage us in our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters in Jesus, I have got some exciting news for you this morning. This is the exciting news. I want you to listen very carefully because otherwise you're going to miss it. This is the exciting news. Christmas is coming soon. Did you guys know that? You did know that. Okay, that's good. As we mentioned in the children's sermon, it's kind of hard to miss, right? Because our world does a pretty good job of announcing Christmas to us. In fact, when you get through with the Christmas lights and Christmas songs and Christmas cookies and Christmas trees, I think you almost would have to be blind and deaf, unable to smell or taste and never leave your house in order to miss the fact that Christmas is coming soon. Every time we leave the house, we are surrounded by literally hundreds of reminders. In a certain sense, the same thing was true for the first Christmas. There were no Christmas lights, Christmas music, Christmas cookies, or Christmas trees. But by the time that little baby was born in the manger, God's people were more than ready. The Israelite people had been waiting for this Savior to come for thousands of years. And every time they opened up their Old Testament scriptures, they were surrounded by literally hundreds of reminders. So on Sundays, between now and Christmas, we will be looking at a few of these reminders, a few of these ways that God made it abundantly clear to his people ahead of time that the Savior was coming soon. Today, we start this series with a text from the Bible that you might not have been expecting. It's not a story, it's not a prophecy, it's not a picture. No, our sermon text today from Matthew chapter 1 is a genealogy. It's a family tree containing a list of 47 random different names that with a few exceptions you and I know little or nothing about. So as you heard this sermon text being read a few minutes ago, and as you marveled at me trying to speed pronounce all of these mostly Hebrew names, I wouldn't have blamed you if the thought went through your head, why in the world would Pastor pick this for our main reading today? What's so interesting about a genealogy? Well, the first thing to understand this morning is that genealogies were much more highly valued. A family tree was much more important in the ancient world than it is today. Um, just think about this with me for a minute. Would you agree that in America, we live in a country that really values individual success? Success of the individual. Now, I think that the, the whole concept of the American dream, right, it revolves around this idea that no matter who you are, and no matter where you came from, through grit and hustle and hard work, that you should be able to climb your way up and become whoever you want to be, right? That's the American dream. And we could debate uh, whether the American dream is a real thing. 
Uh, we could debate whether the American dream is really equitable, right? Whether, whether the same opportunities are really there for everybody in our society to be whoever they want to be. And that would be a discussion for a different time. The point is, our country is founded on the idea of individual success. Like, if you came from a family of wealth and success and then you achieve wealth and success, that's good. But if you come out of nowhere, if you come from poverty, if you come from somewhere else and you work your way up, it's like bonus points. It's like style points. Like now you're living the American dream. Uh, this week I was looking for some stories of people with this kind of a story and a couple examples would be Jay-Z, um, Andrew Carnegie, and the third one I found was Sylvester Stallone. These are all people that came kind of from out of nowhere and climbed their own way up. And this would be like, this is the American dream. It's the success of the individual, no matter where you came from. But in the ancient world, it was very, very different. Like we're all talking about this American thing, but the ancient world outlook was very different. Back then, it mattered very much where you came from. Back then, it mattered very much who you came from. In those days, your genealogy your family tree, it was pretty much like your resume. It really was. It explained anything that anybody would need to know about you. And genealogies were especially important for the Jewish people, of course, because they all wanted to trace their ancestry back to Abraham. God had promised to Abraham that one of his descendants would be the savior. So if back in those days their genealogy or their family tree was really like a resume, then that explains why people treated their genealogies the way that they did. In the same way that you tweak your resume to make yourself look good, that's not a selfish thing, that's just what you're supposed to do. People would do the same thing with their genealogies. So like today, if you flunked out of a college or if you got fired from a job, you might decide to conveniently leave that out of your resume. That's not gonna be helpful. In the same way, if someone had an ancestor with a bad reputation that had done lots of bad things, they might conveniently leave that person out of their genealogy. In fact, one historian tells us how King Herod the Great did this exact thing. He looked back through his family tree and he purged a couple of the names of embarrassing people because he didn't want them to make his great family tree and make him look bad. So with all of that introduction in the background, now we look at Jesus' genealogy and we can see it in a whole different light. These are not just a bunch of random names. These are Jesus' credentials. This is the way that the gospel writer Matthew, inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit, this is the way he's choosing to present and introduce Jesus to the world. And he's being very selective about how he does it. Matthew makes it clear in the end verses, he has not listed every single ancestor in Jesus' line, but these are the highlights. He has chosen 14 highlights between Abraham and David, 14 highlighted individuals between David and the exile, and then 14 between the exile and Christ. So Matthew has specifically chosen these individuals out of, G out of Jesus' genealogy to tell us important things about him. So which names make the list? Well, we've got patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of course. We've got kings like David and Solomon and Hezekiah, of course. But Jesus' genealogy also includes some names that are really, really unexpected. Names like Tamar. Do you remember Tamar from the Old Testament? Probably not. 
Um, Tamar, first and foremost, was a woman. This is unusual because in this day and age, genealogies would usually trace through men. So it's unusual for a woman's name to be included. But Tamar's deal, you could read about it in Genesis 38, is she was involved in one of the most scandalous stories of the entire Old Testament. I'm not going to tell you all the details. Genesis 38, if you want to read it. But the basic gist of it is that Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute, slept with her father-in-law, got pregnant and had twins, and one of those twins named Perez somehow ended up in Jesus' family line. So what would a typical Jewish person have done if this was their ancestry? And it was for many of them, right? If you had Tamar in your line, I mean, the first thing you'd do is probably not mention Tamar's name. Maybe you would just skip this whole particular generation, or maybe if you want to include Judah in there, because he's the head of the tribe, you just cut straight to his son, Perez, and just sort of hope that nobody connects the dots and remembers this story. But how does Matthew talk about this generation, where this scandalous thing happens? The way he phrases it is he rehashes the whole story, so as you're reading it, there's no way you can possibly miss it. He says, Judah was the father of Perez and, Zer and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. You remember her, right? This is that, you know, scandalous, disgusting story from Genesis 38. This is how Matthew writes it, so you can't possibly miss it, that this is what is in Jesus' family line. Moving on through the genealogy, another interesting name on this list is Rahab. Remember Rahab? Well, not only was Rahab a Gentile, with her, with her whole own genealogy full of pagan unbelievers, she's not descended from Abraham. Not only was she a Gentile, Rahab was also a prostitute. But she came to faith eventually in the God of Israel. And she married a man named Salmon and gave birth to a son named Boaz. And that son got included in the genealogy of Jesus. So again, Matthew, as he's writing this, and a normal genealogist, as somebody put this down, they would have just kind of skipped this so you wouldn't notice it. You could have easily just said, straight from Boaz down to his son. But how does Matthew phrase it? Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Remember Rahab, the former prostitute from Jericho. Right? Matthew points this out specifically so we can't miss it. Um, speaking of Boaz, Matthew does the same thing in the next line. He could easily have gone from Boaz to Obed to Jesse to David. But again, he takes an excursion and he points out Obed, whose mother is Ruth, reminding us that this is yet another Gentile person in the family line, somebody from a family full of pagan Moabites who is now grafted into the line of the Savior. It's almost as though Matthew wants to make this specific point. There is Gentile blood in this genealogy within just a few generations of King David. Speaking of King David, we gotta talk about one of the biggest names on this list. I mean, this is a name that any Israelite person would have been very proud to have included in their genealogy. And yet, once again, when Matthew gets to David, he deviates from his normal pattern of father to son, father to son, and once again, he says something unusual. Here's how he describes David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And if you know your Old Testament, you're like, why does Matthew have to go and include that detail, right? 
Why could he not be like King David, the one who killed the giant Goliath in battle? Or King David, the one who won many victories and expanded the nation's borders? Or King David, the great musician who wrote 73 psalms included in the Old Testament? Or King David, the one who is described as a man after God's own heart? But Matthew doesn't do that. And he also doesn't just leave David's name to stand for itself. Instead, he reminds us, David is the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And by including that detail, he reminds us of really the one massive stain on David's reputation. The time when he murdered one of his finest warriors and stole his wife. And it seems like after this event, David was in danger of falling away from his faith completely until God sent the prophet Nathan to call him back to repentance. But this was an ugly episode. This is like the low point of David's life. And so if you're descended from King David, yeah, you're proud to be descended from him, but this is a family secret that you would try to just avoid talking about. And yet, like he has done with all the others, not only does Matthew not leave out the embarrassing details in the genealogy, but he goes out of his way to specifically highlight them. Oh yes, Uriah's wife Bathsheba bringing to mind adultery and murder the lowest points of David's family. So what is going on here? It is almost as if Matthew, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, it is almost as if he specifically wants you to know all of the messiest stuff and all of the furthest out people who have been involved in the line of Jesus. Why does Matthew do that? Well, it goes back to what we said. And we, it goes back to the way that a genealogy was used in those days. A genealogy was functioning like a resume. It told you everything you needed to know about that person. So by writing Jesus' genealogy this way, what is Matthew telling us about Jesus? He's telling us that Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with sinners. Jesus is not ashamed to be connected with outsiders. Right? This is a characteristic of Jesus that we are seeing, and God is telling us this about Jesus thousands of years before he even comes into the world by the people that God includes in his family line. But this has been a characteristic of Jesus that we saw all the time during his ministry. Right? Jesus would go out of his way to spend time with prostitutes and tax collectors and people who were on the moral fringes of society and, and people who were deemed to be far from God and foreigners. Jesus went out of his way be connected with them. And then we see this even more clearly when we look at the really big picture and we see how Jesus went out of his way to be connected to us. Why is it so remarkable that thousands of years after walking on this earth, Jesus went out of his way to be connected to us? Well, the reason it's remarkable is because we, each one of us, we are the greatest sinner that we know. Right? You are the greatest sinner that you know, and I am the greatest sinner that I know. And we'd like to pretend that's not the case, because we can throw shade on David for his adultery and murder and Rahab for her prostitution. Um, or we could unleash our righteous anger on all kinds of people today who have done bad things, whether it's a mass murderer or some corrupt politician or a war criminal. But whoever else it is that we're thinking of in the world, the reality is when it comes to other people, 
we only know a couple things that they've done wrong. We only know a couple of their specific sins. We don't know what goes on in their heart and mind on a daily basis. But we do know in very great detail what goes on in our heart and our mind on a daily basis. And we see our sinful nature showing up much more than we can see anybody else's. So how does your sinful nature show up to you? Maybe it shows up in jealousy at the blessings God has given to other people. Uh, Maybe it shows up in pride at the blessings God has given to you. Maybe it shows up in fear, fear of standing up for what you know to be right in the face of peer pressure. Maybe it shows up in laziness or greed or lust. But whatever the case may be, we know far more of our sins than we know of anybody else's sins. If we were really to sit down and examine our hearts, and if we were really to sit down and think of things we've done in the past that we're ashamed of and tried to just forget, if we were to sit down and like dwell on those things and write them down, we could come up with many, many reasons why we do not deserve to be connected to Jesus. We don't deserve to be part of his family. And yet, What did Jesus do for us in our baptism? In your baptism, specifically, Jesus made you a part of his family anyway. In your baptism, Jesus cleaned you and covered you with his own righteousness. He claimed you as his own now and for eternity. Here's the way God says it in the book of Hebrews. It says, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Jesus is God from all eternity, all the power in the universe. He came down to earth. He's lived our life. He's seen it. And now he sees us. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us his own brothers and sisters. So here, I think, is the really big takeaway from Jesus' genealogy. If you have messed up, if you have done things you're ashamed of, if you have dirty laundry in your spiritual closet that you don't want anybody else to see, if you've ever felt like a spiritual outcast far away from God, then you're Jesus' kind of people. Right? Because before, from the time his family tree even began, before Jesus even came to this world, he's already surrounding himself with people, and he's not surrounding himself with all the good people who did all of the right things. Instead, from the very start, Jesus is surrounding himself with sinners, with foreigners, with exiles, The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Including me. Including you. So Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with sinful people. In fact, Jesus came to the world specifically to be associated with sinful people. So that through his perfect life and his death on the cross, he could wash our sins away. And bring us into God's family forever. So there's actually a lot more to this genealogy than maybe we think when we speed read through it in Matthew chapter 1. But I'd like to point out one last detail here. In the course of this massive genealogy that I'm in no way expecting you to read these specific names from where you're sitting, I'm just kind of showing you the, the breadth of this whole thing. There's 47 names of different people, the 14, 14, 14, and a few more that were added. How many of these names when you heard this genealogy being read, how many of these names did you recognize? It's probably Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Maybe David and Solomon. Probably Ruth, because she's a Bible book. 
and a couple more, depending on your Bible knowledge. Maybe it's a dozen names that you recognize. But then there's well over 30 other names listed about whom we know virtually nothing at all. Like, who in the world was Abihud? I don't know. Who was Eliakim? Who were Utsor and Sadok? What about Eleazar and Maphan? And we don't know anything about these people. The world has forgotten everything about these people. But Jesus hasn't. These individual people are so important to Jesus that he included each one of them by name in his genealogy because these individual people are so important to Jesus, he had come to this world for them, to die on the cross for their sins, to be each one of their personal saviors. And so it is with us, and so it is with me and with you. Uh, all this talk about genealogies and family trees has, has kind of got me thinking, what's going to happen to my name after I die? Right? When I'm safely home in heaven, I highly doubt that my name is going to be featured prominently in anybody's genealogy. I mean, one generation down, two generations down, my kids and grandkids, maybe my great-grandkids will think about me every little while, but a hundred years from now, I doubt that anybody will remember my name. And yet, Jesus will. Right? Because in heaven, Jesus will continue to know my name just as personally and lovingly as he knows me now. And I'll know him better than ever as I see him face to face. And it is the exact same thing with you. So often, right, we hear these grand sweeping Bible passages like John 3.16, where it says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Um, or 2 Corinthians 5 says that God reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And all of this is very comforting and very empowering because if Jesus loved and saved the whole world, then we are part of the whole world. And yet in his genealogy, by including these names, Jesus reminds us of something maybe even more comforting. He doesn't just love the whole world. He didn't just come to save the whole world. He loves you. And he came to save you, personally. Within a hundred years, your name may be lost to the pages of history, but it will never be lost to Jesus. Because what did Jesus already do with your name? On the day of your baptism, Jesus took your name, followed it up with his name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he washed you and adopted you into his family forever. You, a sinful person, yet washed clean in the blood of Jesus, you are God's kind of people. You now get to live with your God and be personally known by him for all eternity in heaven. So for the next three weeks, we're going to continue working through this series uh, called Coming Soon, and we're going to continue to look at these various signs and prophecies that God made in advance to let people know the Savior was coming. But starting today, to set the tone for it, let's not forget the reason why our Savior came. He came because we matter to him. And he came because he wanted to make you a part of his story forever. Amen. 
And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.